Hello and welcome to the Stable Reports podcast. The Stable Report is a new site dedicated to curating the best resources related to stablecoin projects. We celebrate the development of stablecoins and see them as a stepping stone to mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies for daily use in transactions. If you'd like to get acquainted with what stablecoins are, visit our website or follow us on Twitter at Stable Report and let us know what you think. As always, if you see we're missing something, please contact us. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Gregory Plumov, CEO and founder of Stasis, a centralized stablecoin based in Malta. This June, they introduced a Europec stablecoin, EURS, and outlined their aim of bridging the gap between decentralized finance and off-chain markets. The Maltese Prime Minister, Joseph Muscat, was at the launch event, where he spoke about how Malta was taking the lead in establishing itself as the blockchain island with the passing of new legislation on cryptocurrencies and blockchain. Gregory, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I love the name Stasis. It signifies equilibrium in physics, right? Exactly. Thanks for having me. That's fascinating. Um, so I love to start with this question. What got you involved in cryptocurrencies, and specifically, why a stablecoin? Sure. So uh, I was an analyst in a hedge fund and later portfolio management. So I analyzed global macroeconomic trends and I had to pick uh, stocks and uh, trades in derivative marketplace uh, for a global micro hedge fund. And uh, I witnessed uh, the housing crash and back in 2008. And back then, everybody was allocating to commodities. Uh, because uh, U.S. was running fiscal deficits, the dollar was going down, and there was this uh, housing crisis looming. So oil at some point was trading $150 a barrel, nickel was trading $50,000 a ton. And uh, the only reason people allocated to that asset class was because they wanted to sum some asset with a forecastable supply curve. Uh, also, back then, uh, the shale technology was not uh, in place yet, and uh, people didn't know that at a particular price level, you can dig oil from your ground. Let's say $300 a barrel, you can right. frack, frack oil in your garden, in your house, and it will be economically viable. But uh, still, it was a trend, and people were diversifying out of uh, the asset that will be uh, increased in supply, say US dollar, to asset they... Uh, thought they understand the supply curve, say uh, oil or some base metals. Now, uh, Bitcoin uh, appeared only in 2009 and I started paying close attention to it only in 2011, but it, uh, the, the, the uh, idea was very similar. Um, it, it's the only uh, linear supply curve uh, on the earth that is very forecastable and not amendable or changeable. So uh, my partners launched a Bitcoin fund in 2012 and it was the first uh, world's first Bitcoin fund actually even before um, US uh, guys Pantera Capital which is a fa famous for launching their fund in 2013 uh, launched one and uh, we were the ones educating local uh, government here on Malta and actually that happened all in Malta. Uh, so we educated uh, government officials, uh, fund administrators, auditors, what is a digital asset in its essence and how to put it on the balance sheet of institutional uh, product like a fund itself. So, and it was a fun journey um, with this product and it still exists. It's one of the best funds by Bloomberg, rated by Bloomberg uh, with, with its performance. 
Um, and this is how I started. So I realized uh, that I should pay attention and should allocate some capital and please start trading this exciting asset class. And uh, going forward, if there is a new crisis or another situation with uh, uh, traditional fiat currencies where uh, global central bank will decide to print them, inevitably uh, it will reprice this asset versus other currencies. And at some point, global central banks were printing 200 billion US dollar equivalent per month. Uh, Bank of Japan, uh, Bank of uh, England, the ECB, Bank of China, uh, and uh, obviously Federal Reserve. All of them combined at the peak of the crisis in 2013, 2012, were printing 200 billion US dollar equivalent. Mm -hmm. So it's just typical supply-demand economics. Uh, asset with a linear supply that is scarce will reprice relative to asset that will increase in supply. Does that, does that concern you if, that, if or when that day comes that um, currencies issued by central banks collapse uh, because they're over leveraged? How may that affect uh, stable coins backed by collateral using fiat currency? Now, uh, so let's break this question into two. First of all, uh, credit or let's say leverage is uh, a demand that will happen in future and future demand balances the price out. So if there is too much credit, the currency cannot collapse. It's only when there is a very short uh, credit, let's say like Turkey now, there are no long-term Turkey uh, Turkish bonds and there is no long-term demand for Turkish lira that's why it collapsed short term but for the dollar for the euro there are even perpetual bonds issued uh, which means there'll be always a demand to buy them back and to pay uh, for, for these instruments so uh, until the global economy uses this to big currencies as a way to trade uh, between countries, uh, it's impossible they will collapse completely uh, in price. But mm -hmm. what, what is more important, back to your second uh, part of the question, is the inflation expectation, let's say, or, let's say, or uh, investors' uh, attitude toward particular currency. And those are this sentiment drives revaluation of, let's say, pound that was once traded uh, two uh, pound, two dollars versus one pound, right? Now it's 1.3, euro at some point, 1.6 to dollar, right? And now it's one one fourteen. So these, uh, these trends are driven by a sentiment versus uh, one, of one economy versus the other. So I don't expect uh, those global currencies will collapse any time and foreseeable future, but assets like Bitcoin, like real assets, like gold, uh, like real estate could be repriced uh, relative to uh, these currencies. We know Stasis is compliant because of your daily statements, as well as weekly and quarterly verifications by one of the big four. Can you explain a bit more about this process and how it affects also your bottom line? Uh, definitely. So this is the process that brings transparency uh, to stable coin like ours. And it's a huge differentiator uh, relative to the market because all other stable coins have very limited or lack of transparency whatsoever. Uh, since uh, we are mostly facing institutional and accredited investors, we understand how important for them is a measure uh, of uh, co cost of risk 
cost of a, a particular risk of a particular counterparty. Uh, we don't have a credit default swap trading on Stasis yet. Maybe mm -hmm. we'll have in a couple of years, but uh, transparency of our balance sheet gives uh, credibility and comfort for institutional investors to measure uh, their credit risk against us. So we will do three streams, like you mentioned. We'll post daily statements signed by our director. We'll do a weekly uh, audits of our balances by a global a reputable audit firm and then we'll do quarterly audits like typical uh, US companies report quarterly earnings and provide uh, audited statements so we'll do in a similar way all of that will will uh, add a lot of comfort to the marketplace and trust in our product absolutely where do most of uh, your clients come from? Are they mainly buying in through fiat or converting cryptocurrency? So far, mostly fiat, uh, just uh, maybe 4% were uh, through crypto. Uh, uh, they are mostly institutional investors who want to allocate to either ICO without having volatility of uh, Bitcoin or other, or do arbitrage between exchanges uh, transferring uh, stable uh, currency between exchanges and to exploit some arbitrage opportunities. And uh, also we are witnessing a new um, uh, trend. Uh, clients of OTC brokerage are uh, lining up to onboard for uh, Stasis Euro because OTC brokerage charge a higher commission to enter the marketplace. And uh, OTC clients have the similar uh, methodology of uh, a risk management, a risk measurement of a counterparty, uh, and uh, this is exactly the case. OTC brokerage exists because institutional investors want to trade in size and against um, uh, a counterparty they can understand uh, the risk of. So if they can transact through us, it's a price advantage relative to other OTC providers who do just facilitate Bitcoin or other trades at a uh, fee that is significantly higher than other hours. Um, <clears throat> how, do you, how do current uh, KYC and AML procedures delay your onboarding and, and affect the whole bottom line as well? Um, very good question, but uh, in the current world uh, it's inevitable to have uh, uh, KYC and ML and uh, source of funds policies in place and uh, I'm being honest and transparent here that we inherit all the requirements that currently exist for European financial institutions like brokers, like payment institutions. Uh, we require all documents to be uh, less than uh, three months old, uh, notarized and apostolized obviously. And uh, when client doesn't have uh, fresh documents with him, he obviously is required to get once. Uh, and that can take up to a couple of weeks to onboard him as a client. So does this affect your plan um, to reach developing nations? Uh, no, not at all. I mean, we, we understood from scratch that the, this uh, rigorous uh, onboarding process requires some time on the client side. Again, one of our partners uh, is uh, a multinational DMA brokerage company, uh, and they have uh, on, been onboarding institutional clients since 2011, uh, like I said, uh, and they're also based on Malta. So we basically just replicated this process. 
uh, and uh, working business as usual. So it just takes time, but uh, once a client is onboarded, we can fr freely transact. Also, we pioneered what, it call, what I can uh, call a crypto ISDA. It's an uh, agreement in British law that allows to uh, get EUROS uh, by depositing any traditional financial security, uh, either a stock or bond or even crypto. So we can accept any uh, security out there and uh, lend EUROS against them. It's, uh, it's a typical process uh, that how institutions exchange uh, capital uh, trading derivatives and uh, other uh, financial products. To me, it's, it's interesting because Bitcoin, the idea um, was to bank the unbanked. And, and, and so I'm curious how you envision the, the future of stable coins. If I'm a teenager in Venezuela and I have some, some, some money in cryptocurrencies and then I want to use a stable coin, um, but I cannot comply with KYC and AML. Um, how do you envision the future of stable coins in general? As an, as an so there will always be a secondary market um, and the secondary market you can purchase uh, stable coins without any KYC and AML. You just purchase them against Bitcoin or other, uh, obviously in smaller quantities. But uh, I think your question more lies um, uh, in uh, mental part of the world because for some jurisdictions let's say dollar is a more natural currency to think in and for some jurisdictions euro or Hong Kong dollar or maybe Chinese yuan will be more comfortable it's just a matter of time uh, the currently market does not uh, recognize one particular stable coin uh, but I think institutional investors will uh, change that because they're the ones who will dictate uh, the product uh, terms in the end of the day. And uh, back to my example, what I mentioned previously, uh, dollar was uh, unofficially depegged from uh, gold for 40 years uh, up until uh, officially depegging it on August 15th, 1971. Uh, and the whole world was basically adapting to the fact that the dollar is depegged from gold. I think uh, stable coins is a similar uh, asset, similar process that will follow. Uh, obviously not 40 years as the information moves much faster right now, but it will take five, 10 years uh, so the world can adapt to digital assets that transaction transactions happen on chain. They are immutable, irreversible, and they're very convenient. Uh, to use. Actually, with our EOS stablecoin, you don't need any Ethereum or gas uh, if you transact from our wallet. You can send EOS uh, to any Ethereum-enabled wallet paying just 50 euro cents for, for the transaction, regardless of the size uh, of the transaction, I mean, the amount of the uh, transfer. And it's very convenient to use even for uh, your older relatives. Um, and uh, th this... Yeah, this process takes time. Adoption takes time. Uh, we actually have a couple of uh, restaurants uh, in Malta here already accepting EUROS. Uh, we'll have one in uh, Budapest soon. Uh, and other services will follow. I mean, it's just uh, uh, the process that one, once people start using it, they understand how disruptive uh, the product is. And they don't want to uh, come back to the conventional uh, banking system anymore. 
How does Stasis generate uh, revenue? So Stasis will be generating revenue from commissions first, and second from managing the reserves uh, once we accumulate a significant amount of them. Uh, basically, think about, about it like a huge money market fund uh, on a blockchain. Interesting. Um, so you mentioned that you run on Ethereum. Um, are you considering running in alternative blockchains? And also, uh, can we expect to see Stasis to have a pair for the dollar and for the sterling and other currencies? Uh, we, we're very involved in the uh, development of uh, our own blockchain. We have a separate team uh, segregated on that. We also have um, uh, a pilot product on Stellar uh, blockchain. Um, but so far, since our focus is on institutional clients, uh, Ethereum is the most secure blockchain to transfer our token uh, on. And until that changes, um, uh, we, we, are not, uh, we will not be moving significant amount of stasis to different blockchains. Um, I think uh, with sharding and Casper, uh, Ethereum can scale. Uh, significantly, but it's not a, a, an issue for us currently because we are not uh, in the business of micro payments. Mm -hmm. uh, an average uh, status transaction will be more than a couple thousand euros. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's still blockchain is not convenient to pay like a couple euros for a coffee. Mm -hmm. It's convenient to move uh, bigger amounts of uh, value, uh, like I said, irreversibly and immutably. It's interesting you mentioned that today is the anniversary since, since Nixon closed the gold window for the dollar in America. Another question that we like to ask here in Stable Report is how has your perception of money changed over time and where do you, if you could share that? Sure, well money is only something what your neighbor is willing to accept as a means of payment. Uh, like 2,000 years ago, there were some stones. Uh, then there were some uh, rare stones, right, or shells. And then uh, governments came up with uh, gold and silver standards, which ended up exactly uh, on this date in 1971. Um, again, the money by itself is just something you want to have to pay for your goods and services. And the individual doesn't really care what the color it is or what the name of the money is. It just has to be convenient and accepted, uh, right? Uh, as a means of payment. Okay. So uh, I think uh, Bitcoin and, uh, and other digital assets are too volatile currently to, to be accepted as a means of payment. Uh, and the stable coins uh, are a perfect intermediary to get mass adoption and to get people the feel of a blockchain uh, use and the benefits of blockchain while keeping the uh, conventional uh, logic uh, of, of uh, traditional currencies like Euro, for example. Very cool. Gregory, is there a question that we did not cover that you would like to tell our listeners and readers? Well, I suggest everybody to read a book by Nathaniel Popper, Digital Gold. Uh, and uh, 
there is a huge learning curve to climb in digital assets for the whole world. I find it fascinating that even uh, finance professionals, uh, people who worked on the trading floor with me in hedge fund and banks, they don't get uh, digital assets. Not all of them understand the, the concept because they lack the tech component, they lack tech uh, education. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't understand the technology behind. Similar to uh, tech people, they don't have finance uh, education. They just understand the tech, but they cannot put any value to what would it, what it could be worse. Okay. So I suggest uh, everybody should climb their own learning curve. And it's definitely a new marketplace. It's definitely an exciting asset class. And uh, it's just uh, getting noticed by institutional investors. In fact, it's quite interesting that it's the only asset class in the human history uh, that institutionals uh, touch after kind of individuals or public. Just think about it. Before blockchain, uh, you could have uh, invested in a particular asset or a company only after it gone public. And before it was accessible only to big banks or uh, uh, high-profile venture funds or private equity funds. It was not accessible to the general uh, marketplace or mm -hmm. public before. And now uh, digital assets were and are available to the public general audience and institutionals are just starting to eye or start, starting to value and gorge and uh, get uh, allocations to it. And I find it quite fascinating because uh, it's a definitely an investment opportunity um, as institutionals are the one who hold um, liquidity and uh, uh, they can bring billions into this marketplace, thus increasing the value uh, and liquidity um, for the benefit of all uh, investors, right? And uh, our product is a perfect fit for institutionals to start their journey with this exciting marketplace. Absolutely, absolutely, very exciting. Thank you very much, Gregory. It's been a pleasure learning about Stasis and I'm really looking forward to see how the organization develops. If you want to learn more about Stasis, visit their website at stasis.net or follow them on Twitter at stasisnet.